earth are we? Why in heaven are we here? And how to make sense of this mess of our humanness and perhaps even transcend it. Welcome everyone. From whatever nation state or emotional state you might be in, dawn of an era of well-being is the place to tune in. We're going to deep dive into uplift with insight. And I'm thrilled to welcome our two formidable hosts, two-time Nobel nominee and founder of the Laszlo Institute of New Paradigm Research and the Club of Budapest, Professor Irvin Laszlo, and a fourth-generation family business entrepreneur who's the founder of ITEA Institute Quantum Leadership Center, Fred Sal. I like to start each episode by acknowledging our worldwide audience, for whom some are lucky enough to be thriving in this remarkable new environment, but for so many, they're not. It's, it's really challenging. Dawn of an Era of Wellbeing podcast and book hopes to offer real comfort to the global community, helping us awaken to a, a new paradigm and a new era of well-being. We encourage you to not only read the book and hear the podcast, but to feel them, to start awakening your senses to different ways of perceiving beyond just our ears, just our eyes, because this is the, the space that Irvin and Fred refer to as consciousness, and that's our comfort comfort zone, if you will, for the long term. So before I introduce today's illustrious guest, Michael Tobias, I have a very simple question for you, Irvin. Who says that our species is meant to survive? <laughs> well, goodness, we have to say it ourselves. But let me just say it first before I get into this, Alison, how pleased I am to have Michael Tobias with us. He's a naturalist, somebody who knows nature and the ways of nature and has knows it first, firsthand. He has explored this earth this planet, the surface of it, life on it, like few other people have, and he has the wisdom to draw conclusions from it. So, okay, I look forward to talking with him, but just to your question, who, who is meant to, do, are we meant to survive? I think the universe has. I think the answer is the universe has, because we are not here by chance. No life is here purely by chance. By chance, we couldn't have generated life with all its complexity and its beauty, and, and it's symphony and symphony in the in the life in the time of available since the Big Bang even even then. So this is something that is happening, which is which is us. We are an expression of what is happening. We are expressing the the life force, the evolutionary force impetus in this universe. So yes, we are meant to be here, and that we have this the developed consciousness. Is again, can't be just purely by chance. Our consciousness is meant to do something, to serve some aim. It is up to us to find that. This is not just wishful thinking. There is, if a good, quiet, uh, cool look at the, at the statistics, at what's happening at cosmology and at evolution in biology and evolution on society, tells us that things are moving in a non-random way they are moving in a way in which life expresses itself, in which consciousness can be, ex can be used to express it. Maybe it's moving in the direction of higher forms of life, higher forms of consciousness. We are part of that movement. We are carriers, vehicle of it. So I think to say, just to come back to your question, Alison, 
Yes, we are meant. We are meant to survive. We are meant to strive. We are meant to evolve because the evolution of a conscious species on a remarkably life-supporting planet such as planet Earth is not by chance. We are here for something and we can discuss and we should think about why we're here and we should try to... I want to ask you one other thing, Irvin, and then I'm so eager to talk with Michael about this very subject because I think it's vast and um, perhaps even endless. Action, reaction. So everything is ultimately connected. Have we destabilized the balance of nature in the cosmos, given that we've already done so here on Earth? I mean, we know that life has been found, for example, in the most unlikely of places, Venus's atmosphere, uh, rather recently. So is there such a thing as cosmic nature? And uh, how, how does that relate to the mess that we're making down here, vis-a-vis -vis up there, out there? I think the great lesson, and we can hear more from, from Michael on this, the great, one of the great lessons that we can draw on the findings is that life is not a happenstance, not something that just happens on this planet. And it's a fluke. For a long time, this was the thought, you know, the development of a planet such as Earth must be a happy circumstance. It's just a coincidence. But it seems that life is evolving wherever there is a possibility, a physical framework for the carbon-based life to evolve. It is, it is, seems to be evolving in the deep seas and near volcanoes, in, in near uh, active stars, even in space. The evidence is overwhelming on this. It's very recent, actually, in the last 10, 20 years, perhaps, there's more and more of this coming forth. Many planets that are life-supporting planets, and life is emerging wherever possibly it can. So this is something that, is something that we should draw, take seriously, draw some conclusions from, because we are an expression of the life that evolves everywhere in the universe. We are relatively highly, we don't know, there is much higher probably elsewhere in many places, but on this planet, we are perhaps the most evolved species in the sense of a higher level of consciousness, very high complex organization of our nervous system, of our whole body, I think we are still a remarkable species on this earth, and we should protect that and should use that remarkable ability to further life elsewhere on this planet. Even if we can't further it elsewhere in the earth, not directly, perhaps telepathically we can, but certainly on life on earth we can further, and it is our job to further it so that life and consciousness could evolve mm. to higher and higher it's levels. It's hopeful and it's thrilling what you're saying. And I think we're going to jump right into the discussion with Michael because there is so much to un unfold here. So before we go to you, Michael, I'm going to give you a proper introduction because it really is, is quite rich. Um, Michael Charles Tobias, ecologist, author, filmmaker, historian, explorer, anthropologist, educator, and nonviolence activist. His work encompasses ecological anthropology and aesthetics, the history of ideas, environmental psychology, comparative literature, philosophy and ethics, global biodiversity, field research, systematics, deep, deep 
demography, animal rights, and animal liberation. Well, already that's a mouthful. Michael is the author of over 45 published books, nonfiction, fiction, radical hybrids, plays, poetry, librettos, and the writer, director, producer, and our executive producer of well over 125 films focusing primarily on ecological and humanitarian issues, both documentary, drama, and docudrama. His field research has taken him to well over 80 countries, probably more since since these two minutes that we're introducing him. I have the feeling he's a grand traveler. And from regions like Antarctica to many of the world's deserts, temperate zones, tropics, and boreal forests. And he is president of the Dancing Star Foundation, which works assiduously throughout the world in areas of biodiversity, conservation, animal rights, and environmental education. Michael, I am going to quote, and you tell me if you recognize who said this. Here comes the quote. DNA did not grow up on the warm, luscious sand of Waikiki, Evolution had its biggest boost in the adverse seas of the polar region. Does that sound? Yeah, it sounds. Yeah, it sounds. It sounds uncannily <laughs> like something I'd probably say, um, but many others, many others before me, uh, including um, philosophers of the ilk of John Dewey, American philosopher, and, and many other biologists, systematists, have been saying evolution. Tends to develop I will in tell harsh you places. who said so that, it's, and it's... then you're going to deep dive into that because lots of people have been saying that. But in particular, Gaia said that. In a, I want to tell our listeners there is a phenomenal docudrama mm. series that Michael produced uh, with Jane Morrison uh, for 1991. It was a, a five-part uh, docudrama series starring William Shatner and Faye Dunaway as the voice of Gaia. It was called Voice of the Planet. It is a spectacular um, experience, I would call it, and shattering and beautifully rendered. And that was a quote that Gaia said to uh, William Shatner, playing the role of an ecologist searching for the meaning. Do you still believe, because that was an important quote, that that really sets the tone for evolution on our planet? I mean, in other words, if the devastation and breakdown and even pollution is evolutionary uh, to our being, then why are we COP26ing and creating such a fuss over so much destruction? Help us through that one. Well, I, first of all, it's so great to see you, Allison, and, and it's just fantastic to see Irvin, uh, who I haven't seen now in several years. Um, and, and I'm just so honored to be part of this little intimate discussion because I have such huge admiration for Irvin Laszlo and uh, all that he has done on this planet as part of an evolutionary cycle. Uh, I think cycle is a, is a, a useful word in, in answering your question or conjecture, Allison. Um, we know that Earth and more than likely every, every material object and every non-material object in, in this vast 13.8 billion-year-old universe, at least 13.8 billion years, has undergone 
enormous tumult and chaos. But what we've been learning systematically, really going back since the pre-Socratic philosophers and the great Asiatic thinkers, I'm thinking of people like Lao Tzu and Mahavira and of course, Gautama Buddha and so on, um, is that the, the so-called shattering and chaos and pollution is a huge contribution to growing coherence and growing evolutionary rationales that we're faintly grasping with our relatively puny brains and um, uniquely inquisitive uh, apprehensions of everything that's happening around us. We call it nature, but that's just one word, of course. I think that um, there is a reason that COP26 is happening, um, and it has to do with the fact that we're waking up, we're, we're growing up. Our particular species, uh, which is one among, if you include all seven kingdoms of life, that includes bacteria and viruses and prions and so on, is of over a trillion species, we're one of them. And we happen to be besotted with this incredibly contradictory, almost bipolar-like like, um, dialogue within our, within our souls, within our hearts, between us, which has to do with the fact that we're, we're neonatal, we're, we're brand new, we're the youngest primate on the planet, we're the youngest large vertebrate on the planet, we're no more, as far as we can be sure, than about 330,000 years old. You compare that with bony fishes or boneless fishes, we're talking 550 million years of antiquity. So we've accumulated very little experience, relatively speaking. And what's fascinating and exciting and gives me great hope in the midst of protests and disparities and human injustice to ourselves and to all the interdependent communities of other life forms, amongst that trillion species, each species has at least a million individuals, although of course endangered species may be down to a few dozen or less, is that we're becoming aware that we have a responsibility with this inquisitive nature of our hearts and souls and, and our, our cerebral, seemingly endless uh, expanse of questions and pseudo answers we have the ability to be kind, we have the ability to be compassionate, and we have the need, it appears, to rectify things that we see as problematic and mostly as, as painful for others. Uh, and I think pain and the pain points on Earth are a key indicator of what our species has done, but what we're capable of. And it's that capacity which I celebrate and which I would ask everyone to rally around on their darkest days and recognize that we are a species which not unique in any way with respect to what we can do cooperatively. The cooperative structures form a narrative which is our history. And I think moving forward, our history looks incredibly troubled, but also incredibly rich with potential. So. This is a dialectic, we're not gonna answer it, but we can recognize it and we can observe certain critical qualities about who we are as a species and more importantly, who we are as individuals because so many individuals feel and maybe are indeed out of sync with the population 
and the multiple populations of humanity. And the big question I'd put back to you is, can the individual, in fact, uh, direct evolution? Can the individual's feelings, thoughts, dreams actually alter the portal through which humanity views the world and acts upon its instincts, which are well honed, and its its belief systems. That's what I'm I'm really um, puzzled by. The individual and the population. Parmenides said it well. He simply said the one and the many. And this is perhaps one of the great profound dilemmas that we face because it imposes a burden on us, a responsibility as human beings, as feeling, thinking, caring. Indeed. Please, sir. I, I think if I may add, the individual has a unique responsibility because the individual is conscious of what is happening, isn't just experiencing, is experiencing that it's experiencing. There is a retroactive functioning in here. So this is a unique potential to rectify what you recognize as a mistaken past, getting away from the ways of nature. The individual is powerless in the political sense, by, by himself or herself. But in this field of nature and evolution, the, only the individual and groups of individual can really provide a change, can make a change, a conscious change. Sure, our DNA might change by, by, by accident, by mutate, but the purpose of mutations that we can bring us a more higher form of life, a higher human being, is up to the individual. Margaret Mead said it, as you all know, we have quoted it a lot, uh, never doubt the power of a small group of people to change the world. And she added, nothing else ever has. But certainly, the individual doesn't change the world directly, but the individual can change the world by, by being that change, which in an in a, in a unstable, crisis-filled world can actually provide that fluctuation, that, that, that nucleates, and then changes the world, the butterfly effect. A small thing can create that change. We are, we are here, and we can form critical mass. We can form the critical mass that together can create that impetus that changes the world. Just one, one thought to add. We don't know, but it's important to, to try to inquire that even our thinking can change the world. We are very thinking. What goes on in our mind, in our consciousness, has an effect on other consciousnesses. This we know from new quantum uh, consciousness research, quantum physics altogether, the interconnections of things. So to find out what effect our thinking has in the world. It, it has an effect, obviously, so our behavior, because it affects our behavior. And behavior has an effect. <clears throat> but perhaps consciousness itself has an effect. So I just want to get back to what Michael raised this question, the role and the responsibility of the individual. I suggest that we there is more to be found out than we know. How individual consciousness can interact with the species consciousness and how that can make a critical change that can decide whether we go down the drain or up, shift up to a new level of being and well-being. Yeah, I I I think that I'm glad you mentioned the, the quanta and I think the 
what I call the biosemiosphere, which is the the biodiversity of the planet within the concept of communications, semiotics, the signal and the and the signaling, and the the receiver. Um, think of a transmission tower that's neural uh, in every species. Um, we can't we can't gauge these things by by mere metrics because they're they're very tricky. They're as Einstein and Others said spooky at a distance in the sense that uh, a tiny little insect may have more neurons than a large mammal. Um, so even at the neural hierarchy, we're mistaken if we simply go by the numbers. I think Irwin is completely correct with respect to the conscious interjection and relationships that can be engendered. And what's so thrilling is that if we're talking about a world which we are with at least one trillion species, that's largely microbial, but nonetheless, they're inside us, they're part of us, we are them, they are us. The interdependencies are, uh, are a absolute framework for responsibility at the individual level, because we are expressions of that entire combinatory potential, which is nature. And she has, as you re referenced Gaia, she has this uncanny way of getting it right. And it, and I agree completely with Irvin. It's not, I don't believe, random. I, I would be hesitant to say it's purposeful because that has so easily been mistaken as something that relates to human superiority, which I completely um, reject as a theory. I don't believe we're superior at it in any way. And I can attest to this from my personal experience over 70 years now of interacting obsessively with other individuals of other species, not to mention my own, and having surprises that I just have to describe at the level of epiphany and revelatory lyricism. I mean, swimming naked between two 10,000 pound whale sharks in the Gulf of Mexico and having the two of them cuddle up to me on either side. We're talking the size of school buses and I'm eight miles out, nude in the middle of the water alone with these two giant he and she creatures whose eyes are as big as my head. And they're touching me just, just so as we're gently moving. And they're herbivorous, the largest fish in the ocean. And they're um, strictly, uh, they're omnivorous, but they, they spit out krill. They spit out anything that's another life form. Uh, they usually eat coral polyps and they circle the world, circumambulate like albatross, searching for these tiny little morsels of food to sustain what may be the largest hearts on the planet of any known organism other than the heartwood of a sequoia, for example. But these kinds, these kinds of experiences are a guarantee that we're all in this together and we have, again, I devolved to the, the notion that we have this responsibility to love and cherish, revere, and celebrate these life forms. I'm hearing, um, I heard static, it's gone. Um, so we, rate, we, we, we rise to the level of our own instinctive observations. And I say instinctive observations as opposed to strictly empirical observations, 
because I don't believe there's strict objectivity whatsoever. We are subject-laden. Our hearts cannot but be biased. And so natural selection has a selection bias. And we see this um, in ways that can be transformative overnight. They just published the other day, a colleague of ours, um, the female tuskless elephants of Mozambique in Gorongosa National Park. In 12 years, they became tuskless under the pressure of poaching. This is real-time evolution. And we've seen this with dozens of species from Mongolia to the Caribbean, where organisms under pressure have altered their phenotype, their behavioral assemblage of characteristics, seemingly overnight. Urban acorn ants, with respect to climate change, have developed defenses within four generations, which means 20 years for the acorn ants. Response, responses to climate change that will ensure that they can cope with it. Life at plus 50, so to speak. And we're doing the same thing. All of our poetry and love and sonnets and passions, we're adapting as well. And notwithstanding eight, nearly 8 billion ungainly, largely carnivorous homo sapiens, I, see, I think we're getting our act together. We're maturing, we're, we're waking up quickly right. and we have to. So this, this it's is so a real positive, positive, but I want to ask you, Michael and Irvin, is, is, because when you talk about the evolution, almost the forced evolution of a species under pressure, ours is the only species that has ego. Do you feel, to our ego self, it's a harsh reality to think um, that we are not a favored species. I know our ego would like to think that we are. So if to the majority of our egos, there's no purpose for perpetuating our survival other than sheer desire. Is, is it incumbent upon us to really ask ourselves individually and collectively why we want to continue this species, the human species, and in a new way, why we want to uh, grow ourselves into a new kind of species, to really take a, a hard and cold and deep dive delving into why we want to be here because no other species has to deal with their ego in order to, you know, override it or surmount it uh, the way we have to. What do you think, Michael? What do you think, Irvin? Who'd like to talk about that? Michael, I have a thought after this. Okay. So I'd like to hear Michael. Well, <clears throat> I don't know that you're okay. right about that, Allison, with respect to other species mm -hmm. and egos, because it's a it's a concept that's a Vienna born late 19th, early 20th century obsession with mm -hmm. ego, super ego. These are words again. I'm not sure, although I've read most mm -hmm. of Freud and, and his colleagues and Jung and his colleagues and so many others. Um, I'm not sure I believe it. It's an allegorical way of expressing something. But I do feel that humanity has um, an illness. But I also am quite certain that we have gone through phases of, of, of disease and health. And there are curatives which are self-directed. We have a way of treating depression. We have a way of treating heart disease and so on and so forth. We also have a way of treating mental uh, infirmity, if you will, which I would 
I would suggest uh, in, encompasses the notion that we are somehow purposefully at the top, at the zenith of evolution of the phylogenetic tree, which is complete nonsense. Because I have seen and I have felt tenderness and pragmatic idealism in other species, in other individuals. And I could give endless examples, but the, the point, the structure to this idea is that humanity uh, may be suicidal. That was a question that E.O. Wilson asked back in the early 1990s and then determined that we're not. And when I look back at, for example, Paleolithic aesthetics, uh, it was the late French paleontologist Leroy Andre Gourhan who almost came up essentially with an algorithm for divining the metaphysics of cave paintings. What was going on in the minds of our near ancestors just 25, 30,000 years ago as they described harmoniums, uh, complete pictures of life as they saw it and felt it and were part of it. And mostly humbly, it's not until about six, 7,000 years ago in the sub-Saharan Neolithic that we start to see aggression manifested in aesthetics. So there was a point, there, there was probably a 300,000 year period in our growing up where we were making peace, making love, not making war. And so we know exactly how to do this, how to cure this current consumptive malaise, which is an aspiration we should not be surprised by because comfort is comfortable. Mm. Warmth is warm and good food is delicious and so on and so forth. And every human wants and aspires to the same thing. So we should not be surprised that we're going through this current tumultuous transition. It's part, I think, of what every species goes through. Uh, our problem is that we have a huge footprint, that we're large, we're, we're big vertebrates. If we were ants, we'd never worry about issues of sustainability. Size matters in that respect. And um, I do think, again, I go back to this point, we will get through this. Indeed, Irvin. You know, I, I'm re I recall this, uh, a phrase that comes mm -hmm. through in, in Shakespeare's works. I don't recall right now which one, but he says in reply to somebody who says, but I love her so much. The answer was, it's the question, not how much you love, but how well. And oh, this is what we absolutely. should learn. Not how much we want to evolve. And it's the question is not just uh, trying to prove our superiority. It's trying to overcome our inferiority <laughs> to become a more, a better organ, organized, a better, a better adapted. Mm -hmm. form of life on earth, more in synchro synchronicity, more in harmony with the rest of nature, which you have come, come out of it. My, my own question now that I just like to ask, uh, using this opportunity to talk with Tobias now in, like this on camera and talk, talk directly also, what is it that we can really learn from nature? You have studied nature, you have studied the ways of life, and there is something that is a lesson for us here. We obviously are, have divorced ourselves from the right way in nature. What is the right way and how can we get back to it so that we can, we can get back to striving, to evolving, well evolving on this planet? What is it? What is the lesson? Just a few words of advice will be crucial, I think. Well, my answer to that 
is not complete, but it's 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 born of experience, and that is cooperation. Not under not under pressure of an idea that cooperation is the way, but under the recognition that beavers and and wolves and uh, sharks and jellyfish and so forth, every every organism, including the existing three trillion plus trees on the planet, all the shrubs, all the ground cover, that there is a network of communication that is critical to survival. And I don't mean survival in the harsh Darwinian sense specifically. I mean survival in the sense that we will, as, as part of this orchestral planet of, of life and of non-sentience, which may well contain a form of consciousness as well, we simply are not there yet in our apprehension of what that would mean, um, that we we cooperate to the extent that we, as you paraphrase Shakespeare, love well and love constantly. We have no reason to, to, to um, shrink from the full potential of cooperation. We've seen great treaties, we've seen great jurists like Hugo Grotius and, and others over the centuries who have come together to formulate plans by which people can work it out, their various problems, which tend to be mundane, everyday disputes that rise to the occasion of a World War I and the horrific tragedies of a World War II and so forth. But most people uh, are peaceful. Most people love what they do. They love their lives and they love each other, most people. There are others who suffer horribly and, and painfully, and we don't quite know why, because none of us can play God. We can only imagine what they're doing up there on Olympus, if you will. Why uh, 150 million children are orphaned? Why 850 million people are going hungry as we speak? Why this disparity at large? But we are aware of it, and I'm, I'm certain that other species recognize and, and understand by their very devotion. Look at, look at companion animals who are unstinting and unconditional in their love uh, of others. This is built into whatever the, what I call the hologenomic biosphere is telling us that we can work it out if we exercise restraint, if we exercise the best parts of our self-awareness, which for myself has been blessed by recognizing others. I always say the soul speaks when it is spoken to, and evolution does not uh, condemn or liberate us. Only our individual choices can do that. So I've learned from nature in my current infant state that it is a joyful, wondrous world that we're part of, and I'm humbled to be part of it and realize that the only way I can make sense of who I am or what I am and what my little family unit in this vast universe is um, comes down to my 
submitting to the request that nature makes 24-7, which is be part of it, play music, appreciate the beauty, revere what this is, and don't fight it. Don't, don't contribute to friction. Don't contribute to malaise and destruction. And actively participate in peace, in nonviolence. And we can do that with so many, down so many easy avenues that I'm just stunned when I see anger, when I see hostilities flare up. I don't understand it because it's not necessary. Evolution does not require it from my perspective. Michael, you know, you mentioned a term here that I wanted to bring in. That's the last thing that I want to add to this. You mentioned the term love. I think, perhaps, for a conscious species, cooperation feels like love. When you cooperate, mm -hmm. then you feel that your love unconditionally, unrelentingly. You love because you feel yourself one. You feel yourself part of something. Maybe the motivation, the impetus, the drive for evolution, for regaining our evolutionary integrity, is to allow ourselves to feel love. Cooperation is the key. Maybe for a conscious species, cooperation is to allow oneself to love. That is my hunch that I have. And I wanted to, to share it with you, having this unique chance to speak with you and with Arizona. It's, a, it's an, a rare privilege to listen to both of you talk because it is, it, it's so necessary for people to hear and absorb a different energetic than what is being played out and uh, almost force-fed through so many media valves. This is an important conversation. We need to have more of these. And I, I wonder also if there is, if our better instincts, our natural predisposition towards love has been eclipsed by a kind of pushback because when we're being force-fed so much of this negativity through, you know, the mirroring of media or from leadership that's floundering or consciously or otherwise or is behaving badly, it, it, it would naturally evoke our first reaction, which is a pushback, not necessarily a benevolent, loving response. So I'm just wondering, Michael, how do we respond to that? Well, I'm I I, I would I would go to some mm -hmm. real specifics here because yes, the, you Allison, you state it very clearly in terms of the pushback, which I I, I take yeah. to another level uh, or a different level mm -hmm. or a, 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 a mirror image, which is these just absolutely wasteful distractions of of human behavior. Um, which comes down to economic exchange and barter systems and money. And for example, with money, what can you do with money? You can't buy love with money. We've, we've heard the cliches, but what we also know is that, to give you an example, um, 15 years ago, there were approximately 206,000 protected areas protected by humans on the planet. Today, there's over 265,000 protected areas. We are looking in the biological sciences and conservation biology and animal liberation at ways 
to save half the earth from ourselves. Um, humans have appropriated about 55 to 60 percent. It varies from the Tibetan grasslands to the coffee growing areas of, of Western Ghana. It varies in terms of how much land we have appropriated. But hum the human species has irrigated about 60 percent of life on earth. We've wiped out the majority of wildlife, most of the large vertebrates, most of the carnivores. We can go through and rattle off all the statistics that we see in our headlines every day. This is not information that is missed. People are grasping the causes and effects, the consequences of our incredibly harmful footprint, not just carbon and methane, but all, all of the noxious gases, hundreds mm -hmm. of greenhouse gases, and more importantly, the extractive nightmare of greed that relates back to your mm -hmm. ego and superego of the corporate world and its absolute dismissive nature toward so-called employees. This was Das Kapital, volume one. In this, uh, around page 600, Marx wrote about the expropriation of farmers in the Scottish Highlands. He wrote eloquently about the inequities of 500-year-old agricultural traditions eclipsed, to use your, your word, by, by British invaders overnight uh, farmers being burnt to death who would not leave their hamlets. This was Marx at his fundamental best. And, and from that came, of course, the whole manifesto. And from that came revolutions. And from that came Glavnos. And from that came, again, tyranny in Russia that we're seeing today. So these cycles um, relate to human awareness and the polarization that we see now in countries like the United States, um, where you have real madness at large, denial and brazen hatred and insurrection type uh, anger and violence, um, we've got to go from there to recognizing that two to three trillion animals are killed every year for human consumption. So we've got this gap that is enormous. And if is is if it's not resolved quickly in human mm -hmm. hours, uh, we will see the extinction of, of most species on Earth and a depauperate planet that looks more like the surface of Mars than the surface of the planet we in this generation are so privileged to to be able to to enjoy and be part of, more importantly. So those distractions are terrible because they are they are um, redirecting critical energy and finances that we now know can be used at moderate levels to save life. We know what it takes to save an endangered Florida cougar or a California condor or the Gobi desert brown bear, of which there's fewer than 40 individuals left, the rarest bear on the planet. We know how much it costs to save these species, the kakapo, the flightless parrot of New Zealand, iconic mm -hmm. species, the kiwis, which are, which are dwindling. Even, even the cinnabar trees on the, on the Yemeni island of Socotra mm -hmm. going extinct because of climate change. So we, we do know how to reverse these, these trends. And I'm just so brokenhearted when I see the waste of time and energy and funding 
because of dictators and people who are trapped in countries like Myanmar by the dictators, uh, when we could be spending that money to save 30 billion chickens that are slaughtered in Auschwitz-like Holocaust situations every year. So we've got a long ways to go. And um, can we do it? Will we do it? Is this random or is this purposeful? Is, is there some higher power that is um, allowing holocausts to occur every day amongst other animal communities from Borneo to the Amazon, from the Congo to, the, to, to Siberia's uh, permafrost that's melting and emitting methane and, and adding hugely to the global warming crisis? I don't know. I only know that we can do what we are as individuals destined perhaps to do, which is to show our love, to show our care, to be rational, reasonable, and very purposeful about it. Mahavira is said to have used the phrase in, in Gujarati, um, all life is interdependent, parasvahagraho jivanam. Every being is dependent on every other being. This assemblage is a biotic community and there are commons, as the great biologist from Santa Barbara, Garrett Hardin, raised in his 1968 science piece, um, The Tragedy of the Commons, in which greed overtakes responsible shepherding of the earth. So we have this, we have this point in time uh, in which we see the protests in Glasgow and elsewhere in the world, and we're not protesting Anything other than our own species. Imagine. That's what we're protesting. Well, but, and that, please, that, no, continue. Yeah. Puts us, puts us in a very but, but, interesting uh, place. It's really, it's confounding, Michael, isn't it? Uh, why did we derail so long ago? Because if at one time we really did understand inherently the, the sense of collaboration and love that, mm-hmm. that you've talked about and Irvin has talked about, what, mm-hmm. what compels us to derail? And should we not keep our eye vigilant, vigilantly on whatever that reason is? Because it sounds like it's almost a muscle reflex that, that just mm-hmm. habitually recontracts into mm-hmm. its unproductive position and we need to keep it limber. But what do you think? That's, that's well spoken. I mean, there is a muscle man mentality that we can date back to post matriarchy. And obviously, the oppression of women is one of the through stories of this of this terrible transition in the human psyche and its behavior. Uh, But the oppression in general, the killing of other species. um, That's uh, one of my uh, mentors when I was doing my doctoral studies at UC Santa Cruz, the late Nancy Tanner was an anthropologist who really studied hunter-gatherer societies and was one of the few early individuals who really called it out as, as I believe it was and is. Namely, that women who were principally doing the gathering, mm-hmm. not hunting, uh, were propelling this paradigm into the future of, of vegetarianism. And some people may, may think that's more sentimental than not. Albert Schweitzer, of course, applauded all sentiment. He believed if we lose sentiment, we're lost, period. And so I think we need a world where all children who are orphaned can be adopted as, adopted as opposed to couples feeling they must have 
more children. We have to stabilize the human population, lower our consumptive levels dramatically, which is, of course, the emblematic message of a COP26. Um, but it's also critical that people change their diets to stop killing animals, change their behavior to stop consuming this gigantic appetite, which is completely a, a, a key component of obesity at all behavioral levels, and uh, embrace what people like Dwayne Elgin have described for years of voluntary simplicity. But before Dwayne, of course, monks for thousands of years have exhibited and exemplified the merit of, of fasting, of, of periodic fasting, of voluntary simplicity, of I'm not saying we go back to caves and monasteries, but in a sense, as Keats himself, the great poet said, my mind is a monastery and I'm, I'm its preeminent um, yeshiva booker uh, or uh, a student of, of learning, of wisdom. Um, and we need, we need more of that because as Wordsworth so rightly said, the world is too much with us and we are that world. We have to somehow figure out how to nullify the worst instincts in ourselves. And we can, we can practice it. It's not just a meditation. It's a behavioral practice. Go out and sit and observe nature. Watch the squirrels as they deposit their nuts this time of year in 20 different caches where they know they'll be able to find them again when times get rough and it goes below zero. Watch every bird. Listen. Try to understand because they are not just songbirds. They're Mozarts. They're not just fish in the stream. They're Beethovens dealing with currents, searching for something. They, they are vivid reminders to us that that little spider in the corner of your ceiling or in the bathtub needs to be rescued from your gigantic bath. That an ant is precious that the, the greatest aerodynamic creatures on the planet who weigh 0.00038 of an ounce, namely the housefly, try building one. They're miraculous. So we have to come to that level of understanding about what's going on. Uh, turn off the white noise and tune in to this absolute unblushing symphonic revelation, which is in our armpits, in our guts, and in every square inch of topsoil on this earth. Tune into it. Become part of it. Become a responsible player in the orchestra. That's oh the challenge. I, I feel like I've just experienced a symphony in listening to what you're saying. It, you really bring it so home and so into our heart. Maybe maybe we need to rebrand this sixth mass extinction as the sixth mass evolution. So at least there's some kind of, of um, way of pivoting huh. our, our perceptions. Yes. Yes. That's interesting. That's, that's a very good. Like, like so let's, that. let's very initiate it is, <laughs> that it kind is. of yeah. lingo and that kind of thinking that you're describing. It's, it's it's critical because it's a isn't it um, a reinforcement? Aren't we sort of almost regurgitating all of this noxious, toxic stuff? We, we can't digest it. Yeah. Yeah, we are. Yeah. Yeah, we are. Yeah, we are. 
Yeah, we are. And and yeah. you can stop it. You can cut it off at any moment. Just like, And it's not like going on a diet. That would be a horrible right. way to approach it. It's, it's like simply, I'm simply oh. saying, go back to yourself. Go back to who you really are. And as, as uh, Thoreau said, live life deliberately. Be, be aware of what's happening. And more than aware, be part of, of something greater than yourself. That's true love. That's, that's agape in ancient Greek. And that is goodness and benevolence and um, active, activist love. You have to love. You have to be kind. We just published a book that just came out this week, mm. a treatise on kindness um, called Ecological Reciprocity that looks at the co-symbiotic mm. nature of existence. Every And I mentioned earlier <clears throat> cooperative structures. Every cooperative structure tends to survive. Every non-cooperative structure tends to vanish into the obsolete black matter of the universe. Now, you can choose which you prefer. The cold darkness, which tends to imply death for any mammal, any any carbon-based life form, or a species that, that loves the marriage of Figaro and Beethoven's Ninth Symphony and Vermeer's view of Delft. You can choose. It's up to you. It's up to us. Mm -hmm. And uh, some choices are more prevalent than others. Some choices are more gravid than others. But every choice is a pivotal point, is a pivotal moment. And I would just conclude by arguing that the, mm -hmm. not arguing, but suggesting that the life force around us, which is so myriad, which the word myriad, by the way, meant 10,000 yeah. in ancient Greek numerics. But to get beyond that to, into trillions is trillions of individuals, super colonies, if, if you will, which are beautiful things. They're not <laughs> scary. <laughs> they're beautiful. They're they're incredible architecture. Mm. They're not Babel. They're all communicating mm. the same languages. Um, is to is to realize that everyone around us, every person, and by person I'm referring to mites and to fleas and to ants and to ticks and to spiders and to super king cobras and whales. They're all telling each other mm. things. They're all gabbing day and night. They're chattering away, having a blast <laughs> discussing what's going on. The murmuration of birds, that's when big flocks take on shapes. There's millions of birds at sunset, and they're taking on shapes that are almost the quintessence of physics. They're communicating. They're telling each other what time it is, and, and they don't care about daylight savings, and they don't care like borders. They're not interested in borders. They're interested in the love of life, of expressing that, that lust for life is, has been... Uh, described with respect to Van Gogh Indeed. and others. And, I, uh, we, need we need to, to wake, wake up. up exactly, today. Michael. I, I want to, I think we'll conclude on this note because people, we are blessed with the ability of conscious choice. So I, I encourage us to make a conscious choice to right. love as Michael has been talking about and, and emanating because this is really beyond talking. We, we're feeling your energy. So I just want to say once again, a compelling note to conclude on for now. I'm Alison Goldwyn with our hosts, Servan Laszlo and Fred Sow, and today's very, very special guest, Michael Tobias. 
inviting you to join us for more episodes of Dawn of an Era of Wellbeing. And consider also that the holiday season is fast upon us, and it may not feel like a holiday for many people. So this book really makes a wonderful gift of uplift. Uh, the bravado of our ego has historically gotten the better of us. So when we build a new paradigm for humankind, let's try to include human kindness. Stay tuned and stay attuned. And now for a few words from our co-host, Fred Sow. So who is to say that our species, humankind species, is meant to survive? What's your view about this? And this is the critical question that we want to ask. Well, it would be a, a, a pity that a human doesn't survive. But species come and go, you know, and it's just part of the, the fact. But it comes into balance. So what is more equal? Is the tree more equal? The, is the sun more equal? There's a biological balance. But certain things, they can't go. Like, is human being more important than a pile of shit? I think if there's no shit in the world, there will be a lot of ecological problem. But without human being, there's probably less. However, um, human beings are not just any animal. We are the most creative. Um, and we can create with any thoughts. And because of that, we have thoughts that are created through an illusionary self um, that is destructive and separation mindset, or we can create humanity in a form that all life form can flourish and evolution can happen in a higher speed. So it would be a pity if human disappeared. Humans are both uh, ignorant and wise in the same time. All we need to do is choose how we're going to awaken and so we're in a state of creative humanity that works for life. Because there's only life, and everything is life. And we are life. We're not more, not less. That is a commonality of all things. Even the universe, every bit is life. And so when we awaken to life is everything, and we're the representative of the most creative form, it's very important. Look at human being. We can put a bunch of um, soil, a bunch of uh, minerals, and we create this AI robot that can probably walk around and elevate its consciousness and do things. So human being is very creative. And look at what we're creating, an extension of life, a life system of 8 billion people, almost mimicking our life system of 50 trillion cells, an extension of us, not only the social, uh, ecological life form, but also we're creating artificial human being. So it will be a pity if a human being don't awaken to his role in the universe or rather its role in life itself. So thank you so much. Uh, so in one minute, if you could, Chairman, from the Eastern view, is there such a thing called a cosmic nature or what you mentioned just now as a cosmos energy? And how do we calibrate this or re-stabilize this cosmic energy within the humanity? Yes, of course. Um, uh, you know, the form of the, the, uh, of the cosmos 
is called the Taiji, or we call it the universe. The cosmo is the Wuji in the Chinese version. And the energy that linked them between the uh, Tai Chi and the Wuji is the Tao, the energy of all creation. And the cosmos is mental. And therefore, Tao expresses itself in human being or anything of creativity in thoughts. And as I said, humans are the most creative, and they create the Tai Chi, which is all things or all with form or the universe itself, or the expression of life. And there is a purpose in this whole thing. And as you can see, the universe expands, and it goes both ways in a big bang. It goes to the infinitely large, and it goes to the zero. This is how it works. And our thoughts are on a quantum level is moving so fast. If that zero could be just one thought that is steady, when we reach there, the infinite is small, the infinite large, now the creation process would then probably change. Wellbeing is a co-production of the Laszlo Institute, ITEA Institute, and Select Books. It's produced by Nora Cesar and Kenichi Sugihara, with theme music Chimera by Piva Dupont. The book, Dawn of an Era of Wellbeing, co-authored by Irvin Laszlo and Frederick Sau, is available wherever books or e-books are sold. Please subscribe to Dawn of an Era of Wellbeing, the podcast, on Apple or Spotify for more fascinating guests and discussion. My name is Alison Goldwyn, founder and creative director of Synchronistory.com, a future party for the planet, broadcast live worldwide. Wishing you well-being till we talk again next week. 